Hello, and welcome to the Dozing Off Podcast. I am your host and narrator, Lance Lewis. This is a podcast where I read you to sleep. I select classic literature and short stories, read them in this deep and relaxing tone to help put your overactive mind at ease and allow you to doze off. We have two short stories tonight. Both are real feel-good stories, but also stories that are very easy to fall asleep to. First one is going to be The Child's Story by Charles Dickens. The second will be An Angel in Disguise by T.S. Arthur. Both of these stories are pretty short, so I'm going to loop this whole episode one time to ensure that once you fall asleep, you're able to stay asleep. I am also on Instagram and TikTok now at The Dozing Off Podcast. And on TikTok in particular, I've been posting daily poetry, so check that out. As always, if you're here and you're supporting, I greatly appreciate you. It's awesome to see that there's listeners from all across the world, and it is extremely humbling. So thank you so much. And here we go. The Child Story Once upon a time, a good many years ago, there was a traveler, and he set out upon a journey. It was a magic journey, and was to seem very long when he began it, and very short when he got halfway through. He traveled along a rather dark path for some little time without meeting anything, until at last he came to a beautiful child. So he said to the child, What do you do here? And the child said, I am always at play. Come and play with me. So he played with that child the whole day long, and they were very merry. The sky was so blue, the sun was so bright, the water was so sparkling, the leaves were so green, the flowers were so lovely, and they heard such singing birds and saw many butterflies. Everything was beautiful. This was in fine weather. When it rained, they loved to watch the falling drops and to smell the fresh scents. When it blew, it was delightful to listen to the wind and fancy what it said as it came rushing from its home. Where was that, they wondered, whistling and howling, driving the clouds before it, bending the trees, rumbling the chimneys, shaking the house, and making the sea roar in fury. But when it snowed, that was the best of all. For they liked nothing so well as to look up at the white flakes falling fast and thick, like down from the breasts of millions of white birds, and to see how smooth and deep the drift was, and to listen to the hush upon the paths and roads. They had plenty of the finest toys in the world, and the most astonishing picture books, all about scimitars and slippers and turbans, 
and dwarfs and giants and genie and fairies and bluebirds and beanstalks and riches and caverns and forests and valentines and orsons and all new and all true. But one day of a sudden, the traveler lost the child. He called to him over and over again, but got no answer. So he went upon his road and went on for a little while without meeting anything, until at last he came to a handsome boy. So he said to the boy, What do you do here? And the boy said, I am always learning. Come and learn with me. So he learned with that boy about Jupiter and Juno, and the Greeks and the Romans, and I don't know what, and learned more than I could tell, or he either, for he soon forgot a great deal of it. But they were not always learning. They had the merriest games that ever were played. They rode upon the river in summer and skated on the ice in winter. They were active afoot and active on horseback, at cricket and all games at ball. At prisoner's base, hare and hounds, follow my leader. In more sports than I could think of, nobody could beat them. They had holidays too, and twelfth cakes, and parties where they danced till midnight. In real theaters where they saw palaces of real gold and silver rise out of the real earth. And saw all the wonders of the world at once. As to friends, they had such dear friends and so many of them that I want the time to reckon them up. They were all young like the handsome boy and were never to be strange to one another all their lives through. Still, one day in the midst of all these pleasures, the traveler lost the boy as he had lost the child. And, after calling him in vain, went on upon his journey. So he went on for a little while without seeing anything, until at last he came to a young man. So he said to the young man, What do you do here? And the young man said, I am always in love. Come and love with me. So he went with that young man, and presently they came to one of the prettiest girls that was ever seen. Just like Fanny in the corner there, and she had eyes like Fanny, and hair like Fanny, and dimples like Fanny's. And she laughed and colored, just as Fanny does while I'm talking about her. So, the young man fell in love directly, just as somebody I won't mention the first time he came here did with Fanny. Well, he was teased sometimes, just as somebody used to be by Fanny, and they quarreled sometimes, just as somebody and Fanny used to quarrel. And they made it up and sat in the dark, and wrote letters every day, and never were happy asunder, and were always looking out for one another and pretending not to, and were engaged at Christmas time, and sat close to one another by the fire, and were going to be married very soon, all exactly like somebody I won't mention, Aunt Fanny. 
But the traveler lost them one day as he lost the rest of his friends. And after calling to them to come back, which they never did, went on upon his journey. So he went on for a little while without seeing anything, until at last he came to a middle-aged gentleman. So he said to the gentleman, What are you doing here? And his answer was, I am always busy. Come and be busy with me. So he began to be very busy with that gentleman, and they went on through the wood together. The whole journey was through a wood, only it had been open and green at first, like a wooden spring, and now began to be thick and dark, like a wood in summer. Some of the little trees that had come out earliest were even turning brown. The gentleman was not alone, but he had a lady of about the same age with him, who was his wife, and they had children who were with them too. So, they all went on together through the wood, cutting down the trees and making a path through the branches and the fallen leaves, and carrying burdens and working hard. Sometimes, they came to a long green avenue that opened into deeper woods. Then they would hear a very little, distant voice crying, Father, Father, I am another child. Stop for me. And presently, they would see a very little figure growing larger as it came along, running to join them. When it came up, they all crowded round it and kissed and welcomed it, and then they all went on together. Sometimes they came to several avenues at once, and then they all stood still, and one of the children said, Father, I'm going to see. And another said, Father, I am going to India. And another, Father, I am going to seek my fortune where I can. And another, Father, I am going to heaven. So, with many tears at parting, they went, solitary, down those avenues, each child upon its way. And the child who went to heaven rose into the golden air and vanished. Whenever these partings happened, the traveler looked at the gentleman and saw him glance up at the sky above the trees, where the day was beginning to decline and the sunset to come on. He saw, too, that his hair was turning gray, but they could never rest for long, for they had their journey to perform and it was necessary for them to always be busy. At last, there had been so many partings that there were no children left. And only the traveler, the gentleman, and the lady went upon their way in company. And now the wood was yellow, and now brown and the leaves, even of the forest trees, began to fall. So they came to an avenue that was darker than the rest, and were pressing forward on their journey without looking down when the lady stopped. 
My husband, said the lady, I am called. They listened, and they heard a voice a long way down the avenue say, Mother, mother. It was the voice of the first child who had said, I am going to heaven, and the father said, I pray not yet. The sunset is very near, I pray not yet. But the voice cried, Mother, mother, without minding him, though his hair was now quite white, and tears were on his face. Then the mother, who was already drawn into the shade of the dark avenue, and moving away with her arm still round his neck, kissed him and said, My dearest, I am summoned, and I go. And she was gone. And the traveler and he, were left alone together, and they went on and on together, until they came to very near the end of the wood, so near that they could see the sunset shining red before them through the trees. Yet, once more, while he broke his way among the branches, the traveler lost his friend. He called and called, but there was no reply, and when he passed out of the wood, and saw the peaceful sun going down. Upon a wide purple prospect, he came to an old man sitting on a fallen tree. So he said to the old man, What do you do here? And the old man said with a calming smile, I am always remembering. Come and remember with me. So the traveler sat down by the side of that old man, face to face with the serene sunset, and all his friends came softly back and stood around him. The beautiful child, the handsome boy, the young man in love, the father, mother, and children. Every one of them was there, and he had lost nothing. So he loved them all and was kind and forbearing with them all, and was always pleased to watch them all, and they all honored and loved him. And I think the traveler must be yourself, dear grandfather, because this is what you do to us, and what we do to you. Story number two. An angel in Disguise by T.S. Arthur Idleness, vice, and intemperance had done their miserable work, and the dead mother lay cold and still amid her wretched children. She had fallen upon the threshold of her own door in a drunken fit, and died in the presence of her frightened little ones. Death touches the spring of our common humanity. This woman had been despised, scoffed at, and angrily denounced by nearly every man, woman, and child in the village. But now, as the fact of her death was passed from lip to lip in subdued tones, pity took the place of anger and sorrow of denunciation. Neighbors went hastily to the old tumble-down hut, in which she had secured little more than a place of shelter, 
from summer heats and winter cold. Some with grave clothes for a decent interment of the body, and some with food for the half-starving children, three in number. John, the oldest, a boy of twelve, was a stout lad, able to earn his living with any farmer. Kate, between ten and eleven, was bright, active girl, out of whom something clever might be made, if in good hands. But poor little Maggie, the youngest, was hopelessly diseased. Two years before a fall from a window had injured her spine, and she had not been able to leave her bed since, except when lifted in the arms of her mother. What is to be done with the children? That was the chief question now. The dead mother would go underground and be forever beyond all care or concern of the villagers. But the children must not be left to starve. After considering the matter and talking it over with his wife, Farmer Jones said that he would take John and do well by him now that his mother was out of the way. And Mrs. Ellis, who had been looking out for a bound girl, concluded that it would be charitable in her to make choice of Katie. Even though she was too young to be much use for several years. I could do much better, I know, said Mrs. Ellis. But as no one seems inclined to take her, I must act from a sense of duty. Expect to have trouble with the child for she's an undisciplined thing, used to having her own way. But no one said I'll take Maggie. Pitying glances were cast on her one, and wasted from and thoughts were troubled on her account. Mother's broad cast-off garments, and removing her soiled and ragged clothes, dressed her in clean attire. The sad eyes and patient face of the little one touched many hearts, and even knocked at them for entrance. But none opened to take her in. Who wanted a bedridden child? Take her to the poorhouse, said a rough man, of whom the question, what's to be done with Maggie, was asked. Nobody's going to be bothered with her. The poorhouse is a sad place for a sick and helpless child, answered one. For your child or mine, said the other, lightly speaking. But for Tis Brett, it will prove a blessed change. She will be kept clean, have healthy food, and be doctored. Which is more than can be said of her past condition. There was reason in that, but still, it didn't satisfy. The day following the day of death was made the day of burial. A few neighbors were at the miserable hovel, but none followed dead cart as it bore the unhonored remains to its pauper grave. Farmer Jones, after the coffin was taken out, placed John in his wagon and drove away, satisfied that he had done his part. Mrs. Ellis spoke to Kate with a hurried air. Bid your sister goodbye, and drew the tearful children apart 
ears scarcely their lips had touched in a sobbing farewell. Hastily, others went out, some glancing at Maggie, and some resolutely refraining from a look, until all had gone. She was alone. Just beyond the threshold, Joe Thompson, the wheelwright, paused and said to the blacksmith's wife, who was hasting off the rest, It's a cruel thing to leave her so. Then take her to the poorhouse. She'll have to go there, answered the blacksmith's wife, springing away and leaving Joe behind. For a little while, the man stood with a puzzled air. Then he turned back and went into the hovel again. Maggie, with painful effort, had raised herself to an upright position and was sitting on the bed, straining her eyes upon the door out of which all had just departed. A vague tear had come into her thin, white face. Oh, Mr. Thompson, she cried out, catching her suspended breath. Don't leave me here all alone. Though rough in exterior, Joe Thompson, the real right, had a heart, and it was very tender in some places. He liked children, and was pleased to have them come to his shop, where sleds and wagons were made or mended for the village lads, without a draft on their hoarded expenses. No, dear, he answered in a kind voice, going to the bed and stooping down over the child. You shan't be left here alone. Then he wrapped her with the gentleness almost of a woman in the clean bedclothes which some neighbor had brought, and, lifting her in his strong arms, bore her out into the air and across the field that lay between the hovel and his home. Now, Joe Thompson's wife, who happened to be childless, was not a woman of saintly temper nor much given to self-denial for others' good, and Joe had well-grounded doubts touching the manner of greeting he should receive on his arrival. Mrs. Thompson saw him approaching from the window, and with ruffling feathers met him a few paces from the door as he opened the garden gate and came in. He bore a precious burden, and he felt it to be so. As his arms held the sick child to his breast, a sphere of tenderness went out from her and penetrated his feelings. A bond had already corded itself around them both, and love was springing into life. What have you there? sharply questioned Mrs. Thompson. Joe felt the child start and shrink against him. He did not reply, except by a look that was pleading and cautionary that said, wait a moment for explanations and be gentle. And passing in, carried Maggie to the small chamber on the first floor and laid her on a bed. Then stepping back, he shut the door and stood face to face with his vinegar-tempered wife in the passageway outside. You haven't brought home that sick brat. Anger and astonishment were in the tones of Mrs. Joe Thompson. Her face was in a flame. I think women's hearts are sometimes very hard, said Joe. Usually, Joe Thompson got out of his wife's way, 
or kept rigidly silent and non-combative when she fired up on any subject. It was with some surprise, therefore, that she now encountered a firmly set countenance and a resolute pair of eyes. Women's hearts are not so half-hard as men's. Joe saw, by a quick intuition, that his resolute bearing had impressed his wife, and he answered quickly and with real indignation. Be that it may, every woman at the funeral turned her eyes steadily from the sick child's face, and when the cart went off with her dead mother, hurried away, and left her alone in that old hut, with the sun not an hour in the sky. Where were John and Kate? asked Mrs. Thompson. Farmer Jones tossed John into his wagon and drove off. Katie went home with Mrs. Ellis, but nobody wanted the poor sick one. Send her to the poorhouse, was the cry. Why didn't you let her go then? What did you bring her here for? She can't walk to the poorhouse, said Joe. Somebody's arms must carry her, and mine are strong enough for that task. Then why didn't you keep on? Why did you stop here? demanded the wife. Because I'm not apt to go on fool's errands. The guardians must first be seen and a permit obtained. There was no gainsaying this. When will you see the guardians? was asked with irrepressible impatience. Tomorrow. Why put it off till tomorrow? Go at once for the permit and get the whole thing off your hands tonight. Jane, said the wheelwright, with an impressiveness of tone that greatly subdued his wife. I read in the Bible sometimes and find much said about little children. How the Savior rebuked the disciples who would not receive them. How he took them up in his arms and blessed them. And how he said that, Whosoever gave them a cup of cold water should not go unrewarded. Now, it is a small thing for us to keep this poor, motherless little one for a single night. To be kind to her for a single night. To make her life comfortable for a single night. The voice of the strong, rough man shook, and he turned his head away, so that the moisture in his eyes might not be seen. Mrs. Thompson did not answer, but a soft feeling crept into her heart. Look at her kindly, Jane. Speak to her kindly said Joe. Think of her dead mother and the loneliness, the pain, the sorrow that must be on all of her coming life. The softness of his heart gave unwanted elegance to his lips. Mrs. Thompson did not reply, but presently turned towards the little chamber where her husband had deposited Maggie, and pushing open the door, went quietly in. Joe did not follow. He saw that her state had changed, and felt that it would be best to leave her alone with the child. So he went to his shop, which stood near the house, and worked until dusky evening released him from labor. A light shining through the little chamber windows was the first object that attracted Joe's attention on turning towards the house. It was a good omen. The path led him by the windows, and when opposite, he could not help pausing to look in. It was now dark enough outside to screen him from observation. 
Maggie lay, a little raised on the pillow, with the lamp shining full upon her face. Mrs. Thompson was sitting by the bed, talking to the child. But her back was towards the window, so that her countenance was not seen. From Maggie's face, therefore, Joe must read the character of their intercourse. He saw that her eyes were intently fixed upon his wife, that now and then a few words came, as if in answers from her lips, that her expression was sad and tender, but he saw nothing of bitterness or pain. A deep drawn breath was followed by one of relief, as a weight lifted itself from his heart. On entering, Joe did not go immediately to the little chamber. His heavy tread about the kitchen brought his wife somewhat hurriedly from the room where she had been with Maggie. Joe thought it best not to refer to the child, nor to manifest any concern in regard to her. How soon will supper be ready? he asked. Right soon, answered Mrs. Thompson, beginning to bustle about. There was no asperity in her voice. After washing from his hands and face the dust of soil of work, Joe left the kitchen and went to the little bedroom. A pair of large bright eyes looked up at him from the snowy bed, looked at him tenderly, gratefully, pleadingly. How his heart swelled in his bosom. With what a quicker motion came the heart beats. Joe sat down, and now, for the first time, examining the thin frame carefully under the lamplight, saw that it was an attractive face, and full of childish sweetness which suffering had not been able to obliterate. Your name is Maggie, he said as he sat down and took her soft little hand in his. Yes, sir. Her voice struck a chord that quivered in a low strain of music. Have you been sick long? Yes, sir. What a sweet patience was in her tongue. Has the doctor been to see you? He used to come, but not lately. No, sir. Have you any pain? Sometimes, but not now. When had you pain? This morning my side ached and my back hurt when you carried me. It hurts you to be lifted or moved about? Yes, sir. Your side doesn't ache now. No, sir. Does it ache a great deal? Yes, sir. But it hasn't ached any since I've been on the soft bed. The soft bed feels good. Oh, yes, sir. So good. What a satisfaction mingled with gratitude was in her voice. Supper is ready, said Mrs. Thompson, looking into the room a little while afterwards. Joe glanced from his wife's face to that of Maggie. She understood him and answered, She can wait until we're done, then I will bring her some things to eat. There was an effort at indifference on the part of Mrs. Thompson. But her husband had seen her through the window and understood that the coldness was assumed. Joe waited after sitting down to the table for his wife to introduce the subject uppermost in both of their thoughts. But she kept silent on that theme for many minutes, and he maintained a like reserve. At last, she said abruptly, What are you going to do with that child? 
I thought you understood me that she was to go to the poorhouse, replied Joe, as if surprised at her question. Mrs. Thompson looked rather strangely at her husband for sonic moments and then dropped her eyes. But the subject was not again referred during the meal. At its close, Mrs. Thompson toasted a slice of bread and softened it with milk and butter. Adding this a cup of tea, she took them into Maggie and held the small waiter on which she had placed them while the hungry child ate with every sign of pleasure. Is it good? asked Mrs. Thompson, seeing with what a keen relish the food was taken. The child paused with the cup in her hand and answered with a look of gratitude that awoke the new old life human feelings which had been slumbering in her heart for half a score of years. We'll keep her here a day or two longer. She is so weak and helpless, said Mrs. Thompson in answer to her husband's remark at breakfast time the next morning, that he must step down and see the guardians of the poor about Maggie. She'll be so much in your way, said Joe. I shan't mind that for a day or two, poor thing. Joe did not see the guardians of the poor on that day, on the next, nor the following day. In fact, he never saw them at all on Maggie's account. For in less than a week, Mrs. Joe Thompson would as soon leave thought of taking her own abode in the almshouse as sending Maggie there. What light and blessing did that sick and helpless child bring to the home of Joe Thompson, the poor wheelwright? It had been dark and cold and miserable there for a long time. Just because his wife had nothing to love and care for out of herself, and so became sore, irritable, ill-tempered, and self-afflicting in the desolation of her woman's nature. Now, the sweetness of that sick child, looking ever to her in love, patience, and gratitude, was as honey to her soul, and she carried her in her heart as well as in her arms, a precious burden. As for Joe Thompson, there was not a man in all the neighborhood who drank daily of a more precious wine of life than he. An angel had come into his house, disguised as a sick, helpless, and miserable child, and filled all its dreary chambers with the sunshine of love. The Child Story Once upon a time, a good many years ago, there was a traveler, and he set out upon a journey. It was a magic journey, and was to seem very long when he began it, and very short when he got halfway through. He traveled along a rather dark path for some little time without meeting anything, until at last he came to a beautiful child. So he said to the child, What do you do here? And the child said, I am always at play. Come and play with me. So he played with that child the whole day long, and they were very merry. The sky was so blue, 
The sun was so bright. The water was so sparkling. The leaves were so green. The flowers were so lovely. And they heard such singing birds and saw many butterflies. Everything was beautiful. And this was in fine weather. When it rained, they loved to watch the falling drops and to smell the fresh scents. When it blew, it was delightful to listen to the wind and fancy what it said as it came rushing from its home. Where was that, they wondered, whistling and howling, driving the clouds before it, bending the trees, rumbling the chimneys, shaking the house, and making the sea roar in fury. But when it snowed, that was the best of all, for they liked nothing so well as to look up at the white flakes falling fast and thick, like down from the breasts of millions of white birds, and to see how smooth and deep the drift was, and to listen to the hush upon the paths and roads. They had plenty of the finest toys in the world, and the most astonishing picture books, all about scimitars and slippers and turbans, and dwarfs and giants and genie and fairies and bluebirds and beanstalks and riches and caverns and forests and valentines and orsons and all new and all true. But one day of a sudden the traveler lost the child. He called to him over and over again but got no answer. So he went upon his road and went on for a little while without meeting anything, until at last he came to a handsome boy. So he said to the boy, What do you do here? And the boy said, I am always learning. Come and learn with me. So he learned with that boy about Jupiter and Juno, and the Greeks and the Romans, and I don't know what and learned more than I could tell, or he either, for he soon forgot a great deal of it. But they were not always learning. They had the merriest games that ever were played. They rode upon the river in summer, and skated on the ice in winter. They were active afoot, and active on horseback, at cricket, and all games at ball. At prisoner's base, hare and hounds, follow my leader. In more sports than I could think of, nobody could beat them. They had holidays too, and twelfth cakes, and parties where they danced till midnight. In real theaters where they saw palaces of real gold and silver rise out of the real earth. And saw all the wonders of the world at once. As to friends, they had such dear friends and so many of them that I want the time to reckon them up. They were all young like the handsome boy and were never to be strange to one another all their lives through. Still, one day in the midst of all these pleasures, the traveler lost the boy as he had lost the child. And, after calling him in vain, went on upon his journey. So he went on for a little while without seeing anything, until at last he came to a young man. 
So he said to the young man, What do you do here? And the young man said, I am always in love. Come and love with me. So he went with that young man, and presently they came to one of the prettiest girls that was ever seen. Just like Fanny in the corner there, and she had eyes like Fanny, and hair like Fanny, and dimples like Fanny's. And she laughed and colored, just as Fanny does while I'm talking about her. So, the young man fell in love directly, just as somebody I won't mention the first time he came here did with Fanny. Well, he was teased sometimes, just as somebody used to be by Fanny, and they quarreled sometimes, just as somebody and Fanny used to quarrel. And they made it up, and sat in the dark, and wrote letters every day, and never were happy asunder. And were always looking out for one another, and pretending not to. And were engaged at Christmas time, and sat close to one another by the fire. And were going to be married very soon. All exactly like somebody I won't mention, and Fanny. But... The traveler lost them one day, as he lost the rest of his friends, and, after calling to them to come back, which they never did, went on upon his journey. So, he went on for a little while without seeing anything, until at last he came to a middle-aged gentleman. So, he said to the gentleman, What are you doing here? And his answer was, I am always busy. Come and be busy with me. So, he began to be very busy with that gentleman, and they went on through the wood together. The whole journey was through a wood, only it had been open and green at first, like a wood in spring, and now began to be thick and dark, like a wood in summer. Some of the little trees that had come out earliest were even turning brown. The gentleman was not alone, but he had a lady of about the same age with him, who was his wife, and they had children who were with them too. So, they all went on together through the wood, cutting down the trees and making a path through the branches and the fallen leaves, and carrying burdens and working hard. Sometimes they came to a long green avenue that opened into deeper woods. Then they would hear a very little, distant voice crying, Father, Father, I am another child. Stop for me. And presently they would see a very little figure growing larger as it came along, running to join them. When it came up, they all crowded round it, and kissed, and welcomed it, and then they all went on together. Sometimes they came to several avenues at once, and then they all stood still, and one of the children said, Father, I'm going to sea, and another said, Father, I am going to India, and another, Father, I am going to seek my fortune where I can. And another, Father, I am going to heaven. So, 
with many tears at parting, they went, solitary, down those avenues, each child upon its way. And the child who went to heaven rose into the golden air and vanished. Whenever these partings happened, the traveler looked at the gentleman and saw him glance up at the sky above the trees, where the day was beginning to decline and the sunset to come on. He saw, too, that his hair was turning gray. But they could never rest for long, for they had their journey to perform, and it was necessary for them to always be busy. At last, there had been so many partings that there were no children left. And only the traveler, the gentleman, and the lady went upon their way and company. And now the wood was yellow, and now brown. And the leaves, even of the forest trees, began to fall. So they came to an avenue that was darker than the rest and were pressing forward on their journey without looking down when the lady stopped. My husband, said the lady, I am called. They listened, and they heard a voice a long way down the avenue say, Mother, Mother. It was the voice of the first child who had said, I am going to heaven, and the father said, I pray not yet. The sunset is very near, I pray not yet. But the voice cried, Mother, Mother, without minding him, though his hair was now quite white, and tears were on his face. Then the mother, who was already drawn into the shade of the dark avenue, and moving away with her arm still round his neck, kissed him and said, My dearest, I am summoned, and I go and she was gone. And the traveler and he were left alone together, and they went on and on together, until they came to very near the end of the wood, so near that they could see the sunset shining red before them through the trees. Yet, once more, while he broke his way among the branches, the traveler lost his friend. He called and called, but there was no reply, and when he passed out of the wood and saw the peaceful sun going down, upon a wide purple prospect, he came to an old man sitting on a fallen tree. So he said to the old man, What do you do here? And the old man said with a calming smile, I am always remembering. Come and remember with me. So the traveler sat down by the side of that old man, face to face with the serene sunset, and all his friends came softly back and stood around him. The beautiful child, the handsome boy, the young man in love, the father, mother, and children. Every one of them was there, and he had lost nothing. So he loved them all and was kind and forbearing with them all, and was always pleased to watch them all, and they all honored 
and loved him. And I think the traveler must be yourself, dear grandfather, because this is what you do to us and what we do to you. Story number two, An Angel in Disguise by T.S. Arthur. Idleness, vice, and intemperance had done their miserable work, and the dead mother lay cold and still amid her wretched children. She had fallen upon the threshold of her own door in a drunken fit, and died in the presence of her frightened little ones. Death touches the spring of our common humanity. This woman had been despised, scoffed at, and angrily denounced by nearly every man, woman, and child in the village. But now, as the fact of her death was passed from lip to lip in subdued tones, pity took the place of anger and sorrow of denunciation. Neighbors went hastily to the old tumble-down hut in which she had secured little more than a place of shelter from summer heats and winter cold. Some with grave clothes for a decent interment of the body, and some with food for the half-starving children, three in number. John, the oldest, a boy of twelve, was a stout lad, able to earn his living with any farmer. Kate, between ten and eleven, was bright, active girl, out of whom something clever might be made, if in good hands. But poor little Maggie, the youngest, was hopelessly diseased. Two years before a fall from a window had injured her spine, and she had not been able to leave her bed since, except when lifted in the arms of her mother. What is to be done with the children? That was the chief question now. The dead mother would go underground and be forever beyond all care or concern of the villagers. But the children must not be left to starve. After considering the matter and talking it over with his wife, Farmer Jones said that he would take John and do well by him, now that his mother was out of the way. And Mrs. Ellis, who had been looking out for a bound girl, concluded that it would be charitable in her to make choice of Katie, even though she was too young to be much use for several years. I could do much better, I know, said Mrs. Ellis, but as no one seems inclined to take her, I must act from a sense of duty. Expect to have trouble with the child, for she's an undisciplined thing, used to having her own way. But no one said, I'll take Maggie. Pitying glances were cast on her one, and wasted from and thoughts were troubled on her account. Mother's broad cast-off garments, and removing her soiled and ragged clothes, dressed her in clean attire. The sad eyes and patient face of the little one touched many hearts and even knocked at them for entrance. But none opened to take her in. Who wanted a bedridden child? 
Take her to the poorhouse, said a rough man, of whom the question, what's to be done with Maggie, was asked. Nobody's going to be bothered with her. The poorhouse is a sad place for a sick and helpless child, answered one. For your child or mine, said the other, lightly speaking. But for Tis Brett, it will prove a blessed change. She will be kept clean, have healthy food, and be doctored. Which is more than can be said of her past condition. There was reason in that, but still, it didn't satisfy. The day following the day of death was made the day of burial. A few neighbors were at the miserable hovel, but none followed dead cart as it bore the unhonored remains to its pauper grave. Farmer Jones, after the coffin was taken out, placed John in his wagon and drove away, satisfied that he had done his part. Mrs. Ellis spoke to Kate with a hurried air, bid your sister goodbye, and drew the tearful children apart ears scarcely their lips had touched in a sobbing farewell. Hastily, others went out, some glancing at Maggie, and some resolutely refraining from a look, until all had gone. She was alone. Just beyond the threshold, Joe Thompson, the wheelwright, paused and said to the blacksmith's wife, who was hasting off the rest, It's a cruel thing to leave her so. Then take her to the poorhouse. She'll have to go there, answered the blacksmith's wife, springing away and leaving Joe behind. For a little while, the man stood with a puzzled air. Then he turned back and went into the hovel again. Maggie, with painful effort, had raised herself to an upright position and was sitting on the bed straining her eyes upon the door out of which all had just departed. A vague tear had come into her thin, white face. Oh, Mr. Thompson, she cried out, catching her suspended breath. Don't leave me here all alone. Though rough in exterior, Joe Thompson, the real right, had a heart, and it was very tender in some places. He liked children and was pleased to have them come to his shop where sleds and wagons were made or mended for the village lads without a draft on their hoarded expenses. No, dear, he answered in a kind voice, going to the bed and stooping down over the child. You shan't be left here alone. Then he wrapped her with the gentleness almost of a woman in the clean bedclothes which some neighbor had brought and, lifting her in his strong arms, bore her out into the air and across the field that lay between the hovel and his home. Now, Joe Thompson's wife, who happened to be childless, was not a woman of saintly temper, nor much given to self-denial for others' good, and Joe had well-grounded doubts touching the manner of greeting he should receive on his arrival. Mrs. Thompson saw him approaching from the window, and with ruffling feathers 
met him a few paces from the door as he opened the garden gate and came in. He bore a precious burden and he felt it to be so. As his arms held the sick child to his breast, a sphere of tenderness went out from her and penetrated his feelings. A bond had already corded itself around them both and love was springing into life. What have you there? sharply questioned Mrs. Thompson. Joe felt the child start and shrink against him. He did not reply, except by a look that was pleading and cautionary, that said, Wait a moment for explanations and be gentle. And passing in, carried Maggie to the small chamber on the first floor and laid her on a bed. Then stepping back, he shut the door and stood face to face with his vinegar-tempered wife in the passageway outside. You haven't brought home that sick brat. Anger and astonishment were in the tones of Mrs. Joe Thompson. Her face was in a flame. I think women's hearts are sometimes very hard, said Joe. Usually, Joe Thompson got out of his wife's way, or kept rigidly silent and non-combative when she fired up on any subject. It was with some surprise, therefore, that she now encountered a firmly set countenance and a resolute pair of eyes. Women's hearts are not so half-hard as men's. Joe saw, by a quick intuition, that his resolute bearing had impressed his wife, and he answered quickly and with real indignation. Be that it may, every woman at the funeral turned her eyes steadily from the sick child's face, and when the cart went off with her dead mother, hurried away, and left her alone in that old hut, with the sun not an hour in the sky. Where were John and Kate? asked Mrs. Thompson. Farmer Jones tossed John into his wagon and drove off. Katie went home with Mrs. Ellis, but nobody wanted the poor sick one. Send her to the poorhouse, was the cry. Why didn't you let her go then? What did you bring her here for? She can't walk to the poorhouse, said Joe. Somebody's arms must carry her and mine are strong enough for that task. Then why didn't you keep on? Why did you stop here? demanded the wife. Because I'm not apt to go on fool's errands. The guardians must first be seen, and a permit obtained. There was no gainsaying this. When will you see the guardians? was asked with irrepressible impatience. Tomorrow. Why put it off till tomorrow? Go at once for the permit and get the whole thing off your hands tonight. Jane, said the wheelwright, with an impressiveness of tone that greatly subdued his wife. I read in the Bible sometimes and find much said about little children. How the Savior rebuked the disciples who would not receive them. How he took them up in his arms and blessed them. And now he said that whosoever gave them a cup of cold water should not go unrewarded. Now, it is a small thing for us to keep this poor, motherless little one for a single night. To be kind to her for a single night. To make her life comfortable for a single night. The voice of the strong, rough man shook, and he turned his head away 
so that the moisture in his eyes might not be seen. Mrs. Thompson did not answer, but a soft feeling crept into her heart. Look at her kindly, Jane. Speak to her kindly, said Joe. Think of her dead mother and the loneliness, the pain, the sorrow that must be on all of her coming life. The softness of his heart gave unwanted elegance to his lips. Mrs. Thompson did not reply, but presently turned towards the little chamber where her husband had deposited Maggie, and pushing open the door, went quietly in. Joe did not follow. He saw that her state had changed, and felt that it would be best to leave her alone with the child. So he went to his shop, which stood near the house, and worked until dusky evening released him from labor. A light shining through the little chamber windows was the first object that attracted Joe's attention on turning towards the house. It was a good omen. The path led him by the windows, and when opposite, he could not help pausing to look in. It was now dark enough outside to screen him from observation. Maggie lay, a little raised on the pillow, with the lamp shining full upon her face. Mrs. Thompson was sitting by the bed, talking to the child. But her back was towards the window, so that her countenance was not seen. From Maggie's face, therefore, Joe must read the character of their intercourse. He saw that her eyes were intently fixed upon his wife, that now and then a few words came as if in answers from her lips, that her expression was sad and tender, but he saw nothing of bitterness or pain. A deep-drawn breath was followed by one of relief as a weight lifted itself from his heart. On entering, Joe did not go immediately to the little chamber. His heavy tread about the kitchen brought his wife somewhat hurriedly from the room where she had been with Maggie. Joe thought it best not to refer to the child, nor to manifest any concern in regard to her. How soon will supper be ready? he asked. Right soon, answered Mrs. Thompson, beginning to bustle about. There was no asperity in her voice. After washing from his hands and face the dust of soil of work, Joe left the kitchen and went to the little bedroom. A pair of large bright eyes looked up at him from the snowy bed, looked at him tenderly, gratefully, pleadingly. How his heart swelled in his bosom. With what a quicker motion came the heart beats. Joe sat down, and now, for the first time, examining the thin frame carefully under the lamplight, saw that it was an attractive face, and full of childish sweetness which suffering had not been able to obliterate. Your name is Maggie, he said as he sat down and took her soft little hand in his. Yes, sir. Her voice struck a chord that quivered in a low strain of music. Have you been sick long? Yes, sir. What a sweet patience was in her tongue. Has the doctor been to see you? He used to come, but not lately. No, sir. 
Have you any pain? Sometimes, but not now. When had you pain? This morning, my side ached and my back hurt when you carried me. It hurts you to be lifted or moved about? Yes, sir. Your side doesn't ache now? No, sir. Does it ache a great deal? Yes, sir, but it hasn't ached any since I've been on the soft bed. The soft bed feels good. Oh, yes, sir. So good. What a satisfaction mingled with gratitude was in her voice. Supper is ready, said Mrs. Thompson, looking into the room a little while afterwards. Joe glanced from his wife's face to that of Maggie. She understood him and answered, She can wait until we're done, then I will bring her some things to eat. There was an effort at indifference on the part of Mrs. Thompson. But her husband had seen her through the window and understood that the coldness was assumed. Joe waited, after sitting down to the table, for his wife to introduce the subject uppermost in both of their thoughts. Mushy kept silent on that theme for many minutes, and he maintained a like reserve. At last, she said abruptly, What are you going to do with that child? I thought you understood me that she was to go to the poorhouse, replied Joe as if surprised at her question. Mrs. Thompson looked rather strangely at her husband for sonic moments, and then dropped her eyes. The subject was not again referred during the meal. At its close, Mrs. Thompson toasted a slice of bread and softened it with milk and butter. Adding this a cup of tea, she took them into Maggie and held the small waiter on which she had placed them, while the hungry child ate with every sign of pleasure. Is it good? asked Mrs. Thompson, seeing with what a keen relish the food was taken. The child paused with the cup in her hand, and answered with a look of gratitude that awoke the new old life human feelings which had been slumbering in her heart for half a score of years. We'll keep her here a day or two longer, she is so weak and helpless, said Mrs. Thompson, in answer to her husband's remark at breakfast time the next morning, that he must step down and see the guardians of the poor about Maggie. She'll be so much in your way, said Joe. I shan't mind that for a day or two, poor thing. Joe did not see the guardians of the poor on that day, on the next, nor the following day. In fact, he never saw them at all on Maggie's account. For in less than a week, Mrs. Joe Thompson would as soon leave thought of taking her own abode in the almshouse as sending Maggie there. What light and blessing did that sick and helpless child bring to the home of Joe Thompson, the poor wheelwright? It had been dark and cold and miserable there for a long time just because his wife had nothing to love and care for out of herself, and so became sore, irritable, ill-tempered, and self-afflicting in the desolation of her woman's nature. Now, the sweetness of that sick child, looking ever to her in love, patience, and gratitude, was as honey to her soul, and she carried her in her heart as well as in her arms 
a precious burden. As for Joe Thompson, there was not a man in all the neighborhood who drank daily of a more precious wine of life than he. An angel had come into his house, disguised as a sick, helpless, and miserable child, and filled all its dreary chambers with the sunshine of love. 